I had an experience here at Ananda many years ago, um, 1971, 1972, when the ashram was just starting here and a lot of uh, yogis were coming over from India. Uh, we had a very open-door policy and a lot of uh, different teachers came through. And sometimes Swami Kriyananda was here to host them, sometimes he wasn't. The incident I'm going to describe happened during the time that Swami wasn't here and resulted in his deciding that maybe it was better that he would be here when we hosted other teachers. <laughs> um, Ananda people, as you well know, are extremely receptive. Uh, Swamiji has trained us to be childlike in our enthusiasms. Um, we don't assert our own reality. we just very respectful. And this man, who turned out not to have as much integrity as perhaps he ought to have had in his position, saw us as a, a, a pretty ripe field for harvesting new disciples for himself. <laughs> so um, he, we were hosting him, and he gave a satsang. And he'd had a very unusual life growing up in India, and he started describing some remarkable scenes in India, which I had never visited. It was 20 years before, almost, before I went to India and actually saw any of this. But he started describing <clears throat> the kind of things that are <clears throat> written about in the autobiography in regard to Babaji. And he was talking about the mountains and the rocks and the caves and the Himalayan yogis. And I was just meditating, listening to him speak. And all of a sudden, I began to see everything he was describing. I don't just mean that I had an idea of it. I was actually moving into the scene he was describing. I mean, your first thought is, wow, this is neat. You know, here we are. But then I had this realization that essentially that man was coming into my mind and putting that experience, it was his experience, and he was putting into my consciousness. And by the grace of God, I thought, I don't want him in my mind. And I, I repudiated it just like that inwardly, and of course the whole thing just disappeared in that moment as soon as I wouldn't take it. Now, our population was diminished by a few numbers, after that man left, because I think he was, during the time he was here, he was fishing, like this. He was projecting his consciousness into various people's minds, and um, some of them, I'm sure, had the same experience I had, but didn't repudiate it. They accepted it. Perhaps they genuinely belonged with that man. Perhaps they didn't. I think the fruit of it was mixed. But I've always remembered that and thought about it a great deal. Um, because, in fact, you know, I have had uh, some experiences, but truthfully, nothing like that ever happened to me before or since in all these 40 years of being here. And I begun, began to think about it in, from many different levels, and I was thinking about Swami Kriyananda and something that he wrote in a place called Ananda. And he described how um, even though he appears not to interfere with what other people are doing, David and I have been uh, responsible for the development of Ananda's work in Palo Alto since 1987. And of course, we see Swami often. We talk to him. We spend time with him. I think on two different occasions, he made direct suggestions to us. Once, we thought we might open a retreat. We thought somebody was going to give us land, and Santa Cruz turned out they wanted to sell it to us, but we thought they were going to give it to us, and that we could have a retreat in the Bay Area. Um, the expanding light was struggling to stay alive, and we told Swamiji that we thought we could have this retreat in the Bay Area. Wouldn't that be great? He mentioned that the, that would probably just pull the rug right out from under the expanding light, and he said, 
I think we need that like we need a hole in the head, is what he said. <laughs> and David and I, I said like this, I'm picking up intuitively that he doesn't favor it, David. <laughs> you know, what do you think? Are you getting the same message? Yeah, I'm getting the same message. And once we were going to dissolve our ashram house when we really didn't have a community to go to, it was one of those thoughts that if we disappear everything, something else will rise. It was not what Peter Goring was talking about, where you stay grounded. We were just going to dissolve it and hope something happened. And the night before we were going to announce that decision, Swami called up and said, I think that's a really stupid idea. <laughs> once again, we were picking it up. <laughs> but what he wrote in a place called Ananda was that he projects ideas, Swamiji speaking, I project ideas into the ether, and those who want to receive them can receive them. Now, the other half of that was when eventually we did find property to a lease, and we've had our community there all these 20-some years since. About a year after we got it, I mean, it was great hard work, fun work, but you know, it, it was one of those what I call kamikaze karma yoga periods, where you're just nearly just burning right through everything just to make something big happen. And about a year after we did that, we were dedicating that property. And David and I, you know, had a pretty strong sense that we'd been involved in the project. And uh, <laughs> we used to go over to Half Moon Bay. There was this little tea shop. And just to get out of our house, we'd go over there and have meetings, the two of us, and talk about things, drink a lot of black tea and talk about things. And then we'd go sometimes to the beach. And one, during that period, we drove over. We drove to the beach. We didn't have the energy to get out of the car. I'm not even sure we unrolled the windows. We just put the seats back, slept at the beach for a while, you know, then got up and came back. <laughs> so at this dedication, I'm standing up there, and I'm doing my usual thing, just talking to everybody. And Swami was just sitting right behind me. I had the most extraordinary sense that we had done absolutely nothing, that the entire energy had just come from him, from Master, through him, had run right through us, that we'd been the moving force, but that nothing of it belonged to us. Nothing of it. And it was odd, because I sort of, I, I had the microphone, I kept trying to sort of turn a little bit, because I was trying to get him, you know, in the front. I felt so um, inappropriate having my back to what had started it, and, and being the focus like this. Now, what this is about is how superconsciousness really works. Um, in the Bhagavad Gita, of course, we talk about the battle of Kurukshetra, and the Kurukshetra is the, the battle of consciousness. And when we, uh, we think about subconscious, conscious, and superconscious, we tend to think of them as distinct realities, but Swamiji has explained it in a way that I find much more interesting, which is that, in fact, there is subconscious, and subconscious means everything that ties us to our definition of ourselves as egos, as physical bodies, as vulnerable, as afraid, all the different things that the people before me have spoken about, where we tend to go backwards toward what we used to do and no longer works for us, but has that pleasantly familiar ring, either because it was what our families did, whatever. On the other side is where we're going, which is superconsciousness, which is infinite light, which is the power of God and Guru, which is discipleship, everything that we really want, the joy that we're really seeking. And, and the conscious mind is the battlefield in which those two forces war and just basically bash into the sides of our head, asking us which way we're going to go. 
There was a little kindergarten student in our school. She was a, <clears throat> she was a memorable child. When things didn't go her way, she would just start screaming. <laughs> the kindergarten teacher was very good with her. She said, does this work for you, darling? <laughs> you know, do you get what you want when you do this? Do your mommy and daddy respond? No, she said. And one day she was really being terrible, just impossible. The teacher finally took her aside and asked her, you know, what are you doing? She says, well, every day when I come to school, there's a good angel on one shoulder and a bad angel on the other, and they both keep talking to me, and I'm listening to the bad one today. <laughs> Is it so different with us, really? All that downward-pulling energy that wants us to stay exactly as we are all that upward moving energy. But you see, the nature of the superconsciousness, and I want to bring it back to that first experience I was describing, we keep waiting for that superconsciousness to intrude. You know, Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita, he drove the chariot, remember? He moved Arjuna all over the battlefield, but he never picked up a weapon. He was there, he was showing uh, uh, Arjuna what he should do, he was exemplifying the right consciousness, but he refused to pick up a weapon. And that's exactly what God and Guru, what Swamiji has articulated for us, what your own superconscious does, it just sits there. And, it, and even worse, this one screams, this one whispers. <laughs> Have you ever objected to that title, Whispers from Eternity? <laughs> Speak up, Master, that's what I say. <laughs> <laughs> But he, he can't because it is our battle. You know, the master's already won the battle. What good would it do him? I think he'd just come down here and make, make the whole thing work. In Swami's material success course in the chapter called Manifesting Money, which is chapter number two, we've just started studying this in Palo Alto. We're doing a long class series on it. Swami tells about Swami Nityananda, who was reported to the authorities because he seemed to always have all these rupees. And he had no apparent source of income. Where was he getting all these rupees? So the authorities came, and he said, okay, I'll show you. And he dove into a, 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 a lake that was infested with poisoned snakes, and he went down to the bottom of this lake, and then he came up with handfuls of rupees. <laughs> and he said, you know, you can have as many as you like. You can come and get them too. I mean, obviously, he was manifesting the rupees. He was just manifesting them. So Swamiji says, that's one way to do it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but the rest of us are going to have to find some other method. You know, Nityananda just manifested rupees. He, he wasn't, didn't need to be bothered with fundraising. <laughs> but one of these illustrious gentlemen who went before me said, you know, it's not... Success is not the fruits of, of the outward fruits. It's how you have to live in order to be that way. And what we have to do is we have to fight this battle of Kurukshetra with master, master whispering. And if we're talking away all the time, you know, so full of our own ideas, that whisper just goes right by us. And one of the most difficult things not only is to hear it, but to discern among the many different levels that speak to us. This is the hardest thing about intuition. The first step of intuition is to internalize our awareness. When I was about 19 years old and I had a first job, I was working in this law office, and 
I was a secretary, not a lawyer, believe me. And uh, I, uh, I was always, I've always been very independent. Um, I was raised in a family where a, a certain resistance to the norm was uh, a good idea. One of those things that we are born with and we have to work out a little bit. Um, so I was there and it was this girl in the office was getting married. And to me, it seemed like a wedding is, I mean, of anything that should be individualized and personal. And I was just astonished to, to see how, how um, assiduously she was studying the magazines to figure out how to have her wedding. And I, and I began to become aware that this woman lived entirely from the outside in. Everything was from the outside. And I was 19. I was just learning about people. It was so impressive to me. And I've always remembered that because I realized that as we progress, you know, it would have been a positive step for her to have egoic ideas of her own, because at least she would have been trying to think, who am I, what do I need, where do I stand? That would have been progress, because there would have been some consciousness that there is an individual in here and not just part of the mass. So when we, at this stage of our spiritual life or whatever stage we're on, it's naturally a good idea to begin asking, what do I think, what do I feel, what, what, what's coming from within me. But the difficulty is both the subconscious and the superconscious live inside of us. And very often, that subconscious makes us feel that this is exactly the right thing to do because it's totally in harmony with everything we've ever done. But it doesn't usually come that clearly. You know, I, um, Anandamoyi Ma said once, it's very hard to be guided by the guru from inside. She said, most of the time, it's just your own mind. Very chilling thought, isn't it? There was another quote from Anandamoy Ma I loved. This disciple wrote it about herself. She went to Ma, and she was um, talking about all the reasons why it was difficult for her to do what Ma had asked her to do. And Ma looked at her and said, well, shall I listen to you, or do you want to listen to me? <laughs> Just sort of sums it up, doesn't it? So... When we're trying to be intuitive, as everyone who came before me has made extremely clear is fundamental, we also have to approach that with a great deal of humility and a great deal of wariness. Because often, and, and I don't want to make everyone too paranoid, but it has to be said, often the ideas we feel most in tune with are not super conscious. The reason we feel so in tune with them is they resonate with everything we've ever been. And they're just right in line with our comfort zone. And so we feel so good about it because there's nobody in there but us, just us, uh, reinforcing what we've always done. Now, it's not hopeless because God has given us tremendous tools. And it's very important in our discipleship, which is discipleship being the key to superconsciousness, because superconsciousness is something that comes into us from a higher source. And whether we have become formal disciples or we have simply adopted the attitude of discipleship, which is, I don't really know everything, or the I that I'm used to defining as myself, it isn't wise enough to guide my own life. I need help. Isn't that obvious? Why would we be here? We wouldn't be here if we didn't need help. I've often partly lamented the fact, you know, that God has not given us a great many people who are enormous successes in the world. Because so many people who are enormous successes in the world are having a really good time. That's why they're doing it. We tend to get people for whom the world doesn't work all that great, right? Not because we couldn't, because we just aren't interested. 
It was just not our thing to do. We've come to the point where we realize that the systems that have been offered to it just don't quite work. So we have to approach this with a great deal of respect for both sides of this battle. One of the things that Krishna had to keep pushing Arjuna on is the Kauravas are very, very powerful. And time and again through the story of the Mahabharata, day after day in the battle, it wasn't a clear shot that the Pandavas were going to win. The Kauravas would just keep having this great force and the Pandavas would go down and down and Krishna would have to rally them and they'd push again. Ultimately, they were successful, but not without the willingness to, to think of every alternative, to push as hard as they can, and to work together with Krishna. Now, we have master to help us. We have a line of gurus to help us. We have an extraordinary disciple who exemplifies for us. You know, Swami Kriyananda's role has always been required a certain amount of superconscious intuition to perceive. I, I wrote this in the book about Swami Kriyananda. He himself said his picture does not go on the altar. He does not declare himself a guru. He does not make pronouncements about what our lives should be. He said, there's plenty of people trying to be gurus. He said, what this world needs is examples of disciples. You see, that's what Swami offers to us, how to be a good disciple. Because being a good disciple is the key to picking up what's being radiated by all those masters. And by Swami himself guiding us in the development of Ananda, they are radiating it. They are whispering. They will not push it into our mind. We have to do the battle of pushing away all those contrary thoughts, including the one that says, I have intuition. I know what I want. I know what Master wants me to do. This is what right for me. You know, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But we have to take that thought with deep humility, and we have to say, where is this coming from? Yes, it's coming from inside of me, but lots, lots of soldiers inside of me. Is this one of the wiser ones or one of the ones that I wish wasn't on my team anymore? Right? And so we have Swami always exemplifying for us, even in his deference to Master. You know, uh, yesterday or the day before, someone made the remark, I don't know anyone who has a greater right to claim the superconscious nature of their intuition. And I will say that about Swami. I, have, I know no one in my life who has more right to say, this is what Master wants. And I know no one who says it less often, virtually never. And yet how many of the rest of us are always declaring, this is what Master wants me to do, this is what Master told me to do, this is, you know. But Swami showing us what it is to be a disciple. We have tremendous respect for the possibility of being wrong. And so we have the master, we have the example of the disciple, and then you know what else we have? We have each other. You know, many people try to become disciples, I'll just listen to master. And Swami's there, but maybe not. And the other guru bhais are there, but what do they know? You know, some of them are wise, some of them are not wise, but all of us are in this together. This is our divine family. And one of the ways you can tell whether your ideas are any good, is by how other people also respond to them. And it's not, again, that we mindlessly go around and ask this one and this one and this one and this one, what do you think, what do you think, what do you think, what do you think? You know, or my favorite, what we call serial counseling. <laughs> Where, hmm, you didn't like my idea, maybe you will. <laughs> you didn't like my idea, maybe you will. He didn't like my idea, maybe he will. You know, and you sort of shop around until somebody finally says, yes, yes, that's right. You know, 
We have to be very, very inwardly receptive. Is this easy? No. Was the battle of Kurukshetra easy? Did, Chris, did Arjuna ever, I mean, always get it right? You know, the whole Bhagavad Gita exists because after all this tremendous force to avoid this war, they did everything they could do to avoid it. They were absolutely driven to it. They're finally at the war. Everybody's lined up. They all have their weapons. They make all this noise. And Arjuna says to Krishna, hey, wait a minute. I don't really want to do this. <laughs> I kind of figure if Arjuna could be so stupid, then all the rest of us can also be, you know? And then Krishna very, very patiently takes him through it again as to what he's supposed to do, how he's supposed to do it. But the fact of the matter is, where did Arjuna turn? Arjuna didn't declare to Krishna, I don't want to do it. He said, sir, here I am. I, I, I can't see it. Help me to see it. You see that constancy... In the book that I wrote about Swami, I told a story about our efforts to incorporate this property as a California city. It's, it's a long story. You can read it there. But after 18 months of incredible work, the whole thing crescendoed, and it, it just, it was one of Ananda's more magnificent external failures. I mean, it was just superb. You know, 800 people in this big public meeting, seven people, eight people on the board, I think it was, maybe seven all of them were against us except us, and the whole board except for one member voted against us. I mean, it was just magnificent, the fruit of our labors. So we're going to go forward, and we're going to appeal. They did it wrong, and to shorten the story, but I'm going up the hill. We didn't have telephones in those days. Going up the hill with these tele, uh, television reporters to meet Swami, telling them how it was all unfair. We're going to appeal. It's not right, you know, like this. <laughs> We get up there, and Swamiji turns to the reporter, and he says, um, if you give me a few extra minutes, I have a, a scoop for you. I'm going to read a statement that, uh, you know, you're the only ones who are going to hear this. Jyotish was there. I said, Jyotish, what is this? <laughs> Jyotish's eyes get really big, and he says, you don't know? I don't know. <laughs> Swami starts reading this statement. I am very attuned to language. The first sentence I can tell the project's in the past tense. When did it get in the past tense, you know? <laughs> so I listen like this and, you know, like this. And as soon as he's done, they put the microphone in front of me, and I reverse my position. Of course, we're not really going to go forward anymore. I think the decision was right. As I wrote in that book, they were from Sacramento. They deal with politicians. They didn't bat an eye. Just made perfect sense to them. <laughs> we go all the way back down the hill, and I'm telling them why we're not going to go forward anymore. <laughs> As soon as I wave them off, I get back in the car, I go back up to the Swami's house. He said, he just so sweetly, I'm sorry, he said, there was just no way to reach you, just so dear. <laughs> I said, what made you change your mind? He said, I was meditating this morning, and I asked Master what we should do. And Master said, don't go forward, it's fine, just leave it. He said, did you ask Master? <laughs> No, didn't occur to me. <laughs> I was just going the way I was going. And then, he just, that's all that was required. Because I, obviously, you know, exemplifying what it means to be a disciple. You cannot assume today what was true yesterday. You have to always be in that chariot with Krishna. And you have to recognize that you have to fight the battle. But if you keep asking him, he will take your chariot exactly where it needs to be, into that realm of superconsciousness, where we're all heading.